Well, good evening. It is, uh, again, a privilege to be with you, to have been with you on this Lord's Day, to fellowship with you, worship with you. And now I invite you, please, to take your Bible and to turn with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, a very familiar passage uh, to many of us, if not most of us, the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and we'll read tonight verses 1 through 7. We won't get as far as that very familiar call of Isaiah, but I want us to see the vision that formed the basis of that very familiar call of Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Please listen, because this is the very Word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, He covered His face. With two, He covered His feet. With two, He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you that we can close out the day, the Lord's day, with uh, the Lord's worship. Lord, we come to you at the end of a full day, and we are asking you for the ability to be attentive and receptive. Oh Lord, would you please help me to try to faithfully do justice to this great vision? We pray more than that, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit, not only to understand, but to apprehend by faith what is revealed to us on these pages of Scripture. Our Father, we pray that in the name of Your Son, the Lord Jesus, and by the power of Your Spirit, You would lift up the knowledge of Yourself to our mind, to our heart. We pray, Lord, that You would increase our faith. We pray that You'd humble us. We pray that You would draw us to You to deal with our sin. And above all, Lord, We pray that you would reorient our lives this coming week to glorify you and enjoy you in all that we do. Help us now, we pray, O God, in Jesus' name, amen. It was Tuesday morning. Our family was getting ready for the day. The phone rang. It was my mother. She said, turn on the TV. I said, what's going on? The date was September 11th, 2001. 
When we turned on the television, we saw horrific images of two towers burning. And as they collapsed, just a few minutes later, the world as we had known it started to crumble with them. Every preacher that following Sunday had to prayerfully decide, where do I go in the Scriptures today? I went here. I went to Isaiah 6. Because it gives the people of God a God-centered vision for a crumbling world. It's been over 20 years since that catastrophe. Now we awaken on October 8th to the horrors of Hamas, drawing the nation of Israel to the precipice of a battle for their survival. Without doubt, the potential it has to draw many nations into an armed conflict, perhaps on a scale that we have not seen since the Second World War. Aside from the global armed crisis, we have in recent years experienced a cultural crisis. As the worldview and the morals of our own nation have begun to distort and crumble beyond recognition, from our own neighborhood to the nations, our world has become an increasingly risky place to be the people of God who desire to live the will of God. It was in just such a moment that God gave Isaiah a life-shattering, life-giving vision to equip him for life and for ministry. So tonight, by paying attention to this vision, we're going to learn this life and mission-transforming reality in this world. Here it is. When you are called to live and minister in a world that is crumbling... You need a renewed vision of God, exalted in majesty and excellent in mercy. When you're called to live and minister in a world that is crumbling, you need a renewed vision of God, exalted in majesty and excellent in mercy. But tonight, I want to invite you to see three dimensions of this vision with me. First, we're going to see God exalted in majesty. Second, we're going to see our sin before the God who is exalted in majesty. And third, we're going to see God excellent in mercy. First, let's see God exalted in majesty. Come back to the text, verses 1 to 4 with me. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, He covered His face. With two, He covered His feet. With two, He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. It helps us to understand that Uzziah was the great king who had led Jerusalem for decades until pride got the better of him. Second Chronicles chapter 26 tells us that during Uzziah's reign, he went to war against the nations that threatened Judah, and he was so strong that he became a power in the region and extended his nation's borders. He fortified Judah's defenses built an impressive military, increased its natural resources. He was a king who did what kings are supposed to do. He prospered and protected the nation. And Judah enjoyed the benefits of his rule for 52 years. But when he became strong, 
Uzziah became proud, and he reached out for an office that God had not entrusted to him. So God judged him. And Uzziah spent the closing years of his life isolated as a leper as his nation began to decline. At the same time, a new superpower was starting to overtake the region, a nation called Assyria. And when Assyria rolled their blitzkrieg over a nation, they did the kind of things that CNN warns you about before they show you the footage. Think Hamas or Bukha or Mariupol in Ukraine. In that year that King Uzziah died, Assyria is on Judah's doorstep. The great prospering protecting king is gone. Corruption in Israel is on the rise. The culture is in decline. There's a terrifying threat to national security at the front door. That's what dominates your news feed in the year that King Uzziah died. So God provides His prophet a vision of who's really on the throne. The vision is designed to remind Isaiah who really reigns, who really is the king. It begins, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Then down in verse 5, Isaiah interprets what he's seen. My eyes have seen the king. When God's people were living in the midst of headlines like those, God gave them a vision of himself as excellent in majesty. I don't know if you go to art museums, but if you go to an art museum and you see a great portrait and you know it to be a great portrait, particularly if you paid to get into the museum, you stop and you take your time and you notice all of the details for all it's worth. Perhaps you pay attention to brush strokes. You look at the shading. You look at how the artist brought the vision to life. If we want to be equipped for life and ministry in a world like ours, it will do us good to linger in front of this vision that the prophet Isaiah has painted for us. Isaiah records, I saw the Lord, Adonai. The title means master. It means owner. The one with absolute power to do and the absolute right to do as he pleases. Notice that the throne was high and it was lifted up. In other words, it was higher than any other throne. And the train of the robe of the one who sat on it filled the temple. Now the grandeur of a royal robe is a cue to everyone who looks at it about the splendor and the dignity of the person who wears it. Perhaps you watched the footage just a few months ago. We watched the coronation of King Charles III of Great Britain. And if you watched the coronation, you remember King Charles processed in a royal robe. When his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, was crowned in 1952, her coronation robe was 21 feet long. It was embroidered by the Royal School of Needlework. It took a total of 3,500 hours to embroider. And maybe if you watch the early seasons of that show, The Crown, it tries to capture some of the splendor as Queen Elizabeth walks in Westminster Abbey and the train goes all the way down the aisle. Here, the whole space, that cavernous temple, is filled up with that symbol. That symbol, The excess of the Lord's robe engulfs the inside of the temple. It says, there is no room for another one. The power of His presence is seen and it's felt. The foundations of that great temple, that great building shook, and the whole place is filled with smoke. 
And at the center of the vision is the absolute master of all, on a high throne engulfing the room with His majesty, and smoke fills the building as it's shaken to its core. Then there in the circle of attendance, there's the circle of attendants serving the king. Think of a royal court with pages, servants waiting and scurrying about doing their sovereign's bidding. And this king in his court is attended by magnificent angelic beings, seraphim. We're not told how many were at court around the throne, but these angelic beings are humbled in awe at the presence of the Lord. They cover their face and they cover their feet, a sign of humility and reverence. With two of their wings they still fly, a symbol of readiness to do the bidding of their master. So exalted is this one on the throne that his servants are majestic, angelic creatures who bow in awe of him and stand ready to do his service. They also perpetually praise the Lord. As we listen in on their praise, it tells us about the one who majestically sits on the throne. They praise him as almighty, they praise him as holy, and they praise him as universal. Notice the title. The Lord, uppercase, of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. Does that term sound familiar? Maybe you remember Luther's hymn. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name. From age to age the same, and He must win the battle. Sabaoth means hosts, the great gathered force, the regiments of the heavenly army. That was the title that David attributed to God when he took out Goliath. He said, you come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. That title, Lord Sabaoth, is used 62 times in the book of Isaiah. And coming from the lips of these angelic beings, it declares that whatever armies exist in heaven or on earth, the Lord is almighty over them. So what does that mean? It means that great Uzziah, who you relied on for your protection and your prosperity, is not the Almighty Commander. The terrifying hosts who are amassing at your border are not ultimately in command. And what we need to see, brothers and sisters, when the culture is crumbling around us and all the risks seem to be multiplying, is that God, the Lord, is master. He's higher. He's almighty over the forces of nature. He's over angels and spiritual beings. He's over presidents and their policies. He's over over foreign terrors and tyrants and their armies. But He's not only almighty, He's holy. The fact that the Lord is Almighty would be of limited comfort if He was capable of corruption or capable of evil. He'd be just like the superstitious pagan nations, the the gods of those nations, unreliable, fickle, vindictive, unjust. But the Lord on the throne is entirely separate from corruption. He's entirely separate from any contamination of evil and sin. He's entirely free from moral weakness or compromise. He is infinitely and impeccably complete in purity. He is holy. And He's that to extreme perfection. He is holy, holy, holy. The words of Lewis's little tale about Narnia come to mind. Remember the story one of the children asks about the great lion, Aslan, 
who is the rightful ruler, and she says to Mr. Beaver about Aslan, is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver answers, safe? Safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. The king is almighty. The king is holy. The king is omnipresent. The great angelic praise says, the whole earth is full of His glory. I remember the first time I heard this passage really preached. I know we can't hear it without hearing R.C., holy, holy, holy. (laughs) But the first time I really heard it preached was J.I. Packer, and it was at a conference in the mid-1990s. Now, if you ever heard Packer preach, you know there's not much by way of dynamic going on in his preaching. Packer stood there like an Oxford don with his hands behind his back, his eyes straining to see the text, and he would expound if he got excited with an occasional gesture. And when he was done opening up this vision in Isaiah with such weight of God's presence, the whole place that we were in didn't want to move. And when he opened up this declaration, the whole earth is filled with his glory, Packer called it God's ubiquity. The Lord is present everywhere, all the time, all at once. That means, listen, he's not like the pagan gods. He's not limited to a territory. There's not a zone. There's not a region. There's not a crevice. There's not a crack. There's not a corner where this king does not reside and this king does not rule. God, in His brilliance and power and majesty, is everywhere present, even though sinful humans suppress that fact and deny Him and rebel against Him. The whole earth, say the seraphim, is filled with His glory. That's the vision God gave in the year King Uzziah died. In the midst of that news cycle, that crumbling culture, we need to see God exalted in majesty. Now, if we see that vision, there's going to be a response. And believe it or not, it won't be good. God is for us and not for them. See, if we see Him as we ought, our first response, our first response, if we see God exalted in majesty as we ought, our first response will be to deal with our own sin. We need to, secondly, I want you to see that we need to see our sin before this exalted God. Look at verse 5. Isaiah says this, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. My mind goes back to those images on that terrible day in September 2001. Stuck in my memory are the pictures of looking, people looking up at those towers aghast, hands over their mouths, the catastrophe taking place. Maybe much more in our own view at present are the expressions of anguish and even horror as we see the news feeds from Ukraine and Israel. This vision was life-shattering for Isaiah. Woe is me, for I'm lost. Lost doesn't quite capture the sense of devastation. The word means utterly ruined, doomed, made to cease. I'm undone, as the older versions put it. See, this is a cry of calamity, even terror. It's about to be all over for me. This is a soul that is shattered and scandalized 
by its own guilt. There's a great risk for us as the people of God that we can become sensitized to and scandalized by only by the sins of the people out there, by those people. It's very easy for us to spend much of our time with a sense of our own rightness, taking, talking about all of the corruption that's so obvious in other people. But if we are not confronted with our own sin, if we're not shattered by it, our pontificating and judgments about others may have more to do with our own self-righteousness than our sensitivity to the majesty of God. In front of this vision of God's majesty, Isaiah was shattered by the sense of his own sin. And what's striking to me is that when you hear the sin that scandalized him, we might be tempted to go, Isaiah, aren't you overreacting a little bit? I'm a man of unclean lips. Really? It's not sort of a typical headline-making sin, is it? Man of unclean lips. He doesn't go, woe is me, I'm an adulterer. Woe is me, I'm a murderer. Woe is me, I'm a thief. I'm undone in the presence of this God because I'm a man of unclean lips. Does this mean that Isaiah was a potty mouth? A gossip? A grumbler? Well, those would all mean he had unclean lips. For example, if you just for a moment listen to how Romans 1 describes the sins that deserve God's wrath. Just listen to Romans 1, 28 to 32 just for a second. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, blasphemers, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then Romans 1.32 says this, according to God's righteous decree, those who practice such things deserve to die. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, it says, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now, if you listen to that list, there's not one of us who's not indicted by the list at some point. The holy, holy, holy one who sits on the throne of the universe takes the culturally acceptable sins of our lips much more seriously than we do. But I think we actually get a clue into Isaiah's particular problem when he says this, I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Because here's what God says in Isaiah 29, 13 about the lips of His people. Listen to what He says, Isaiah 29, 13. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. The people of God were faking it with God. They were flapping their lips in religious observance according to the codes they'd been taught when their hearts weren't in it. So could it be like the rest of God's people, Isaiah was saying the right things? Saying the right things without God, giving God the ownership of his heart. Was it that Isaiah was simply an external religious phony? Whatever his particular sin was, the disclosure of God's majesty exposed it, and Isaiah said, I'm done. So can I just ask you, if you're going through the motions on religion, 
on the outside and you're keeping your heart from God on the inside, you're playing chicken with the Lord of hosts. And it's a game that will completely undo you one day. Phony religious lip service is unfit for God's presence, as is any other sin. Either the high-definition ones are the ones that we tolerate as low-grade, culturally acceptable sins. Perhaps another takeaway from this is we don't take any of our sins seriously enough. We diminish it, we deflect it, we dissimulate, we defend, we deny. Because we do not see the exalted majesty of the one whose glory fills the whole earth as well as the private places of our secret thoughts and our secret conversations. So may I ask you tonight, is the holy, holy, holy Lord exposing anything unclean in you by His presence? Well, if He is, there's good news. Because Isaiah's vision is not only life-shattering, we're notice lastly that it's life-giving. It shows us God not only exalted majesty, not only our sin before the exalted God, but we also see God as excellent in mercy. Look back at verses 6 to 8 as we see God excellent in mercy. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal they had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now, when we're confronted by the scandal of our own sin, we tend to do one of two things. On the one hand, we tell ourselves that the devastation that we feel is just baggage that we all carry, and we need to get, see God as a little more therapeutic and a little less majestic. A loving God understands. A loving God won't condemn, condemn anybody. There's really nothing that needs to be done for us but to, wel- but to wel- be welcome in God's presence and just come to terms with who we are because we're already welcome. I'm okay, you're okay, God is happy without needing to deal with our guilt. That's one way we try to deal with it. The other thing we might do is try to deal with the scandal our soul- souls feel by performing religious rituals for God. We multiply religious rituals and routines and rules so we can clean ourselves up enough to stand in the presence of God. I think of the scene in that classic movie, The Mission, with Robert De Niro. If you've seen it, you remember Robert De Niro climbs the waterfall with his bare hands with all of his weapons of warfare in the bag on his back because he's trying to pay off God for killing his own brother, torturing himself to purge his guilt before God. And we can do that in all sorts of ways. I'm going to deal with my unclean lips by being more religiously rigorous. You notice God takes neither of those approaches with Isaiah. He doesn't say, no, 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 poor chap, you've misunderstood me. You're not really undone. Nor does he say, you know, Isaiah, you can avoid the sense of doom that you feel if you just climb up these steps on your knees to the altar. No, don't miss it. God Himself remedies Isaiah's uncleanness and undoneness. Watch this. He sends one of His servants, a seraph, to the altar, and He takes away Isaiah's guilt and Isaiah's sin. 
Through His servant whom He sends, the majestic King stoops from His throne and Himself provides exactly what the unclean man needs to live in the King's presence. The stone that came from the altar symbolized that sacrifice had already been taken place, had already been made for Isaiah's religious fakery, and all his other sins had been forgiven. His hypocrisy was erased, taken away, no longer on the books before God, because God Almighty, holy Himself, met his need. Isn't that good news? There's even better news than what Isaiah got. Like the rest of the Old Testament, system and sacrifices, this was a pointer. Just like you heard Jesus say on the road to Emmaus, the whole thing points forward to Him. This was preparation for the moment when God would come down in the person of His Son to meet the need of sinfully shattered souls. The Old Testament commentator E.J. Young tells us that who Isaiah saw in the form of a vision was one who would later come as the Christ. Because John's gospel tells us that it was actually a vision of the Son of God in glory that Isaiah saw in that vision. John chapter 12 uses, uses Isaiah this way. Isaiah said these things because he saw his, that's Jesus, glory and spoke of him. John Calvin commenting on this from John's gospel said this. John tells us that it was Christ. And justly, for God never revealed Himself to the fathers, but in His eternal Word and only begotten Son. Listen. In the gracious plan of God, in the fullness of time, it was not an angel from God who was sent from the heavenly throne, but the Son of God. The one who had shattered Isaiah with the disclosure of His majesty did not consider the display of that majesty a thing to be hung on to. But He humbled Himself. And in the fullness of time, at His incarnation, took on our nature to live and serve as Jesus, the Savior of sinners. And He provided not a stone from the altar, but His own life and His own blood on the cross. And His sacrifice was the final finished sacrifice for sins. It's by His blood shed that if we believe in Him, our sins are once and for all taken away. In God's excellent mercy, He provided forgiveness and cleansing by sending His Son to give Himself as a sacrifice for people of unclean lips and unclean hearts and unclean lives. So my friends, if you are undone by seeing God as excellent in majesty, see His excellent mercy in Jesus Christ. Let Him touch you. Let Him cleanse you. Let Him remove your guilt simply by believing in Him. Turn from sin. Trust the Son of God who came and died and who is now raised as the exalted Lord. And as you believe in Him, turn from trusting other personalities. Turn from trusting other powers of this world to keep your world together and by the mercies of God trust and submit your life as a living sacrifice to him when you are called to live and minister in a world that is crumbling you need a renewed vision of God exalted in majesty 
and excellent in mercy. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that you are indeed our Father in heaven, that you are high and lifted up. You are holy, holy, holy. And we thank you that from your holiness, in your love, you sent your Son to be the sufficient, final, atoning sacrifice for every sin of every person who would ever believe in you. And so, Lord, now tonight, would you please cause us to love you in your glory, to hate our own sin, but to trust Christ to be more full of mercy than we are of sin. And I pray, Lord, that if there would be one who has heard this message tonight who has not yet turned to Christ, would you grant that sovereign, saving grace and turn their hearts to you. And we pray it in the name of Jesus and God's people's sake.